All right, welcome to the Winter Faith podcast today. Um, joined by um, a recent author who had a book come out just last week and also has mm-hmm. her podcast, Faith and Feminism, that she's been doing for a couple of years and mm-hmm. with great success, she was telling me. Um, <laughs> welcome to the show today. How Thank are you, you for I'm great. I um, am excited to be here. I know that you just you know, found out about me, I think like two days ago, and here we are already recording. So I'm excited to have this conversation. Thank you for asking me on your show. Yeah, absolutely. Yes. So the very, very recent friendship, I was just telling (laughs) you that I, um, I found about your book through a a common friend, Christy Wallman, and, and, Mm. and heard you speak about your book, and then went through and almost listened to your entire book in the last 24 hours. And there's definitely a few things in my head, a few things that I've forgotten. Yeah. But when you mm-hmm. think about this book, is this your first book? It is my first book. Okay. So your first book. Um, mm-hmm. And why don't you just tell us um, a little bit about the book and, and a little intro of yourself as well? Yeah. So um, just a little bit about me. I am uh, like you said, I'm an author and I'm a podcaster. I've been podcasting for about two years now. Um, and my podcast is Faith and Feminism, as you mentioned. Um, I grew up in the conservative evangelical church and uh, for so long tried to go along with those teachings that I was taught um, in terms of be submissive, uh, be silent, be seen and not heard. And I thought, you know, even though this feels wrong, if this is what God wants of me, I will, of course, do it. And um, it wasn't until I began to do missions work specifically with sexually exploited and trafficked women that I realized that these teachings were actually um, being mirrored in the men who who bought women. So this idea that men, uh, men needed respect and that women were there to give respect. Um, I started to have these encounters where this is what men said they went to buy sex for um, to get the respect that they deserved in their own words. And so it was having these interactions and realizing similar themes of women need to be home, they need to be quiet, they need to be um, submissive, they need to, um, you know, kind of be sexually available for men or like they're a huge temptation, all of these ideas, sexualizing them. um, I found also in my own upbringing And so it really had me start to question uh, the why. Why do we see so much oppression of women? Why do we see so many women being trafficked? Why do we see so many women being survivors of sexual abuse and violence? And um, ultimately finding that it had a lot to do with power differentials. There's lots of research that's come out about this, um, that power differentials is actually what contributes and primes the ground for abuse. And my church upbringing was priming the ground for abuse by promoting enormous power differentials between men and women. And so I quit my job as a missionary and uh, decided to start reclaiming feminism for the faith to try and bring attention that what, to what I had witnessed, that um, the gender roles I had grown up with were actually harmful and contributing to the harm of women. And so I quit my job um, right around the time I got married. Um, so I've been married about four years and um, actually four years exactly. Um, and so my, you know, for the first couple of years, I was working part time trying to find what I was trying to say and how to say it. And then in the last couple of years, quit my other part time job to fully pursue the podcast and um, my book. So I think it's been about an, a year and a half 
um, but I've been fully pursuing this and just had my first book come out. And um, yeah, um, my husband and I live in uh, Athens, Georgia, so Northeast Georgia, and I am originally from Colorado. Um, Some other fun facts, I like to travel. And uh, we have two dogs, which you may or may not hear in this podcast. I usually shut them out, but sometimes you cannot control the FedEx man showing up. And so if you do hear that, uh, apologies in advance. Well, we welcome dogs. All dogs go to heaven. (laughs) Dogs are welcome in the background. I've done some podcasts before where our neighbor's dogs are the whole time barking and I can barely (laughs) concentrate. So that's not happening for me, but I have worked through that before. Okay. um, There was, um, yeah, thanks for that, that Mm -hmm. introduction. There was a, um, one or two things just right off the bat that I think about this idea of power differential. Mm -hmm. Could you talk more about what that is for those? I I think it's a fairly new term for me too. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, so when we're talking about power differentials, so there's a psychoanalyst, um, her name is Lynn Yonak, I talk about this in the book, um, but she has been asking the question, why, um, why is sexual assault so prevalent in our society? You know, you think of the Me Too movement, why can you ask almost any woman, actually probably every woman has at least an experience with sexual harassment, if not sexual assault. Um, like I said, statistically, one in three women is the survivor of assault. Um, I don't know a single woman who hasn't had sexual harassment. I, I like honestly cannot think of a single person who hasn't. Um, and so the question is, why does this happen? I know that forever and um, growing up as a, a woman, specifically in the evangelical church, I was taught that it was kind of my responsibility to prevent those things from happening. So um, I could prevent sexual harassment and sexual violence by um, covering up by being fully clothed, by not walking alone at night, by having keys in my hand, by having my cell phone ready, by, uh, you know, having a man present. Um, All of these things I was told to kind of prevent sexual violence happening to me. Unfortunately, those things didn't protect me. Um, I was a good girl. I followed all the rules and still um, I was, I am a survivor of sexual assault. And um, I kind of thought it was just me. And I think that's kind of what we've been told as women. It's like, oh, if something happens to you, it's just like individually sin. You're unlucky. And and actually, a lot of it, I thought it was my fault because um, I was raised with the belief that, um, you know, I grew up with sayings like, um, if it's not on the market, don't show it. Or, uh, you know, boys will be boys. Or uh, women are stumbling blocks. And so I thought, you know, I must have done something wrong. I wasn't covered up enough. I, uh, you know, I did something wrong. I don't know what it is, but I've been told my whole life if something happens, it's my fault and my job to prevent it. And so when it did happen, I didn't know how to deal with it. And I didn't tell anyone because I had so much shame about it for like 10 years. So the question is, if this is my story and what I found as I, did missions work is this was not just my story. This was the story I heard over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I started asking myself, why is this happening? Why is what I was told was a man's individual sin? Why are so many women victims of other men's choices? And so, um, you know, 
when we talk about power differentials, when we talk about the research that Lynn Yonak has done, like I said, she's a researcher and has come to see it um, as, you know, power differentials. So when we talk about power differentials, we're talking about who has power in a certain situation. So she gives a lot of examples of, you know, a lot of times when we hear about sexual assault in the church, we hear about this all the time. Um, so let's think of perhaps Ravi Zacharias. Um, he was abusing women. And because he was a powerful celebrity man, people didn't believe the survivors of abuse. And he had a lot of power over them. Most of the time he was, um, they were in his employ. So he, they're his massage therapists. And so coming forward would be, um, you know, a cost uh, uh, to, to losing employment. And so he had power over them in this way. And then also that he just had this massive celebrity um, standing and no one would believe them if they came forward. And so we see this example of Robbie having power over his victims. But if we kind of zoom out, this is the story we see again and again and again. And if we're even talking about, say, it's maybe even two peers. So let's talk about the case of Chanel Miller. Um, two college students, uh, you think they would have equal footing, but because of the way our justice system is set up, oftentimes men have power in our justice system and women don't. So this, um, to, to backtrack to this case to kind of give an idea of the power that was in play here. Um, we're talking about um, uh, Brock Turner was a Stanford swimmer um, and was witnessed raping an unconscious woman. Like he, there was witnesses to this act. He had done it outside. And so um, when they went to court, uh, what we heard and again and again, let's not ruin his future um, you know, he was such a good guy. He just made a mistake. He was drinking. He wasn't responsible for his actions. Yet, when we hear, heard the stories of the victim, it was her fault because she was drinking. She should have known better. She should have been watching her drink. She shouldn't have done this at night. Um, and not even concerned about her future or her livelihood. It was all focused on absolving the sins of Brock and, and people saying, well, I knew Brock, he could never do this. And this is something that we see again and again. And so who is holding the power in that situation? Well, it's Brock, not only because he took advantage of an, a, a severely drunk and unconscious woman who had power there. Obviously he did because she was not conscious to consent. Um, so there's power in that way. But then when you think about when we zoom out, um, when it did go to court, even though there was witnesses, uh, he only served, he was only convicted to six months jail time. And that's like best case scenario. And he only served three months of those. And so if we look at more statistics here in the United States, only five out of 1000 rapists face jail time, five out of 1000. And so again, and again, I read her memoir and she talks about, I have the best case scenario. There is witnesses to my rape. I can't have a better case than this yet. It took, she was dragged through the mud. Her name was dragged through the mud and it was all put on her as if it was her problem. And so when we look at the scripts that we have in society, for example, United States, we're, we're actually number 51 in gender parity. People they would think we're higher, but there was a UN report in 2018 and women don't have um, as much power as men. That's a simple fact here in the United States. And if we look at our representation, that's something that we really lack in the representation of government and who is making these laws. Why do only five out of the 1000 rapists fill jail time? Probably because a lot of judges and police officers and all of these are men and they're naturally going to identify and almost want to protect the men. And even if that's not what they would say, um, 
you can never understand what it's like to live in a woman's body. And so there's even just like that lack of understanding of what it is like to be a woman to, to constantly feel that um, you're at risk of at least sexual harassment. I get cat calls um, all the time. It's, it still happens today. You know, I'm, I'm 32 years old. I'm married and nothing prevents the cat calls. They're, they're everywhere. And so we need to talk about who has power in society? Why do women, why are women not believed? And oftentimes when we hear these stories of sexual assault and sexual abuse, who held power in that scenario? And so often it's the men. It's a college professor over a student. It's, you know, an employee over, um, or an employer over an employee. Um, and when we see stories of sexual assault in the church again and again, a pastor over a congregant. And so we need to examine the power differentials that we have in play, not just through hierarchical standings, but also through like societal value. Where do we place our value? How can we see that so often men, um, you know, are given the benefit of the doubt where women are disbelieved? Let's even talk about, for example, um, you know, we're one of the only, actually, we are the only wealthy nation that doesn't have pair, uh, paid parental leave. And how that is showing that our value is not on women being in the workforce. It's kind of like, oh, well, you should stay home if you have a kid. Um, and so there's all of these little things that shows us that women don't have the same kind of power. Um, they're, they're not as valued. And so we need to examine the power differentials that we have and what scripts and what lessons that are coming away from that. And so, like I said, there's many researchers who talk about this. Lynn Yonak is one of them. There's another one named Jackson Katz. Um, and there's another study actually in India of this woman who surveyed 100 rapists, um, convicted rapists, and she asked them why do they do this? And what she heard again and again is it became from gender scripts and gender norms, the ideas that women should be in home, at home and uh, cover up or they're going to be responsible for something. And, and while that's, you know, an idea in India, that's also very present here. So often we're hearing about, well, what, sh what she should have done differently so she wasn't insulted, assaulted instead of who did the assaulting. So I think even the way we have this conversation, it's still saying it's a woman's responsibility um, to not be raped when it's actually the message should be men don't rape. Um, but I think even that is showing the power differential of who's, who, who are we focusing on when we have this conversation? And while we should care about victims and hear their stories and believe them, we also need to be like, well, they can do everything right and still be the victim of assault. So we actually need to address the cause, the root cause, which is why do men assault? And again and again, we see it coming from a need for domination, a need for power, and a need from, for control. And that's what I witnessed when I talked to Johns. Um, they told me, I am here to get the respect I deserve. I am here to get the respect that I feel like I don't get elsewhere. This, this is completely coming from our gender norms and our gender scripts that tell us that men must have respect. They must be powerful. They must be in control. Um, and so it's really just when we look at this, what I have learned, we need to, you know, go back to our own theology, our own teachings. What is teaching men that they must be in power and that they must be in control and they must have respect? So much of this comes from, in my context, the evangelical church. And if we really want to value women, we need to really examine the messages that we're giving to men and women in the church. Yeah, absolutely. No, you can, I mean, I can just hear the passion and the research and mm -hmm. like the hurt and pain and shame and just like the courage you have 
Um, you've shared a few stories I know in, in the book and, and mm-hmm. elsewhere about the negative slash absolutely abusive responses that you've mm-hmm. gotten for mm-hmm. just basically saying, I don't know what I would mm-hmm. consider just facts. Mm-hmm. Like I, everything you just said, I, I don't, I don't feel like there's anything to debate there. There's but, not. <laughs> but it's, not it's pretty, it's pretty like black and white. Mm-hmm. Like we just look at numbers. Mm-hmm. And, um, but it, it does resonate probably with people who are, um, you know, men who think they're above the system. And I think mm-hmm. that I probably do that, you know, I'm mm-hmm. sure I've done that in the past and I probably still am learning how, um, just my privilege, you know, being white, being male, mm-hmm. um, having authority, like, okay, I, I went to, I went to seminary, you know, like mm-hmm. I have a podcast, like I hear my voice a lot. And so mm-hmm. I think that can all contribute to power, um, mm-hmm. and conversations where, um, I'm speaking with men and I'm being too silent. Well, too mm-hmm. silent. I'm being silent and I should say something. Um, because I think that silence kind of contributes to the ongoing messages because if we're not yeah. correcting them and, um, you, you had a story that resonated with me that I, I wanted you to talk about where you were doing, I think you were like in a, in a meeting for, for church or your work and this idea of the man of peace that mm-hmm. you were supposed to <laughs> look for the man of peace. <laughs> And I was wondering your just a little bit of, of background about that is like, mm-hmm. I think in scripture, they talk about finding the man of peace. And I think mm-hmm. it talks, it's like in a context of mission, right? Mm-hmm. It is. Yeah. So I used to work for a missions organization, which I explained before. I worked for them for five years. So I first did missions with them for um, about a year going around the world doing where I worked with a lot of women who were exploited. And so I'm so grateful that in many ways, um, that gave me an opportunity to witness oppression and find a passion for it. And, and they even gave, you know, they told me, yeah, uh, you know, we believe in women. Um, but I didn't necessarily see that always played out in leadership. And so um, I had been working there for, I think this is about four years at this point, and or doing missions with them or doing something. And I was working in their marketing department and um, uh, the whole they did this program called the world race and this new marketing initiative they were focusing on is like to teach racers to find the man of peace. And um, I remember them, I had a, so I was the writer. I was like the lead writer and I wrote a book so I I can write. Um, But my coworker, she was the graphic designer. And I remember um, one day her talking to me about this, about how they're asking her to do all this man of peace stuff. And she asked, well, um, is this, does this include women? Is this like inclusive of women? Are we also looking for women that can be entrusted with the gospel message? And she said when she brought it up, she received a lot of pushback. She wasn't really heard. Um, and she knew, oh, I'll go to Megan because Megan is very passionate about women's rights. And so um, I remember going to my boss about it and I was asking, it's like, I'm hearing from coworkers, like I hadn't been yet asked to uh, create promotional material for it. And so I went to my boss, um, she's my marketing director, and and uh, I was like, hey, like, 
I don't agree with this term. I don't think it's scripturally re- relevant because if we look in scripture, uh, you know, another term is house of peace. Like it's, it's a very gender neutral term if we're talking about the meaning. And when we're not speaking in gender neutral terms, uh, then people create theology around that and it's not helpful. And so um, she said, yeah, I agree with you. I don't think this is proper language, but I've already brought it up and they haven't heard me. So why don't you try to bring it up? And so um I, you know, I got my opportunity very quickly to talk to senior leadership about it. There was something they did called Fireside Chats, where they kind of talked about what the organization was doing. And it was a place where employees were supposed to ask questions. That's what they told us. This is a place to ask your questions, uh, to understand, to, if you have some concerns, to bring those up. And so he was in this uh, meeting, there was about 50 50 of us in the room. Um, talking about the man of peace and he's like any questions and so I like raised my hands and uh, well first I leaned over to my boss I'm like is this a good time to ask the question she's like yeah and so I like raised my hand and I said does this term include women and he got very offended and ta- started talking about how he um, you know wasn't racist or sexist which is so funny because I didn't bring up race but I think it's important to acknowledge that so many times these issues of patriarchy and white supremacy go hand in hand um, and people will get defensive about both of them. And so he said, of course, you know, like, actually, he didn't even really answer my question. He kind of just went on a rant and like turned my question into a joke. Like, of course, like, how could you even ask this? Like, and then talking about how he had done so much work for, um, you know, women and children. And I was like, oh, okay, like, sorry for asking. And I just remember feeling belittled. This is a meeting of like 50 people. Everyone is staring at me. I felt like I was being shamed publicly for asking this question when I was told this was a safe place to ask questions. And so I, after, you know, he finished his upset rant, um, I I heard several um, co-workers of mine whisper that was a good question Megan and in fact afterwards several people approached me and said that was a really good question I feel like the way it was handled was really poorly I'm going to follow up with an email and I think you should too and so we all followed up with emails and so there was some dialogue back and forth and finally after two weeks of of dialogue over email uh, he agreed you're right this word is not using the word man of peace is not representative let's use the term of person of peace and alliteration hi so the marketing is better but um he you know he finally agreed but he's like I want to have a meeting with you and I thought this meeting would be like yay good job persevering yay like for um showing me like something that wasn't inclusive I'm thankful for the opportunity to learn and especially what it's like for as a woman and instead, in that meeting, he pulled me aside and he just told me that I was wrong to ask the question, that um, I had asked the question out of offense. And while I was right, I shouldn't have done it. And um, I remember feeling like that was a small victory for for everyone I, at the organization that the language was changed. But I just remembered being feeling like I was villainized for it. And so I think when we're talking about in so many of these Christian spaces, if we look up who's in leadership, it's white men who are generally of the boomer generation. And so as such, 
they hold perspectives of white men of the boomer generation. They don't know what it's like to be a woman. They don't know what it's like to be a millennial. They don't know what it's like to be a person of color. They don't, you know, there's so many things they don't know what it's like. And instead of taking the time to learn, hey, this person is giving me their perspective of what it's like, they just bring these perspectives and really kind of shut down any other perspectives. And so we see this in the church over and over and over again, and this almost protection of power. I have power. Don't challenge my power um, because I'm good and I don't want to be bad. And I'm not saying that these men are bad, but I'm saying if we don't take the time to listen to blind spots that we naturally have, I'm a white woman. I have had and talk about in my book often about how I have to unlearn white supremacy and I have to continue to unlearn white supremacy. And oftentimes when I get defensive, because I think that's a natural human response when someone calls this out, I just remember what it's like for me as a woman to tell a man that hurt me. And with a person of color saying, hey, Megan, that hurt me to understand what it's like to not feel sealed or believed in um, when I tell a man that something hurt me to be dismissed in that way. And so in the same way that men hold power over women, white folks hold power over black people and people, you know, Latino people and like all of these different people, because there's this hierarchy of race um, that we have put inside this idea of white supremacy. And so um, I think whenever I get defensive, I just remind myself, I can never know what it's like to live in a different body. And these people are um, generously letting me know what it's like. And that should inform the way I interact with the world, because if I'm hurting them, I want to stop hurting them. And I just wish that more people held that perspective. Um, and it, it's not to say it's not painful to learn that you've hurt someone, but we need to take responsibility for the ways we have and learn to do better. And and I think in so many ways, the church has not done that well. Um, and I mean, I just look at, you know, the uh, January 6th insurrection and, and the way Jesus's name was used in that way. And so it's like how, how, the Jesus I know is such a liberator, uh, continually brought people in from the margins. Um, when, when, when asked to hoard power, he gave it away. They expected a king like kings we had known before, like a Solomon or a David. And the way Jesus was king was to give away power again and again, to bring people in from the margins, to be a liberator. And I think so often we've got it wrong. And so many of us in the church are just trying to protect our power because we feel like we're, you know, we're, there's not going to be enough for us if we share, um, which is just anti-gospel, uh, you know. So um, I think that's something that we really need to examine in the church, what power structures are in place. Why do we feel like there's not enough? Why do we feel defensive when people talk about um, racism or sexism or homophobia? Why do we feel defensive? Why can't we just sit and listen and understand a perspective um, that's not our own? And I feel like it's what Jesus did again and again. He listened to people. And so often we fail to do that well. Yeah, absolutely. What, um, what or who were the people that were able to, to help you break from being silent and break from your, overcome your shame? Yeah, that's a really good question. I think, I mean, of course, I'd have to give a shout out to Jesus (laughs) Um, (laughs) because I do feel like what I saw in scripture was a liberator. And so I'm going to give a quick story of what continues to inspire me today. So we have the story of Mary and Martha. 
I'm sure most people know the story of Mary and Martha, but they probably never heard it told in a way uh, that kind of centers the women's experience in that story. So we have um, a very patriarchal culture, much more patriarchal than what we have today. Women were not allowed to interact with men. They weren't really allowed to leave the house. They weren't allowed to learn. They weren't allowed to teach. They weren't allowed to be in spiritual leadership. So much stricter um, patriarchal context. And then also they were just kind of property, if we think about it. Like they couldn't hold property you know they didn't have property uh they were basically uh only in that's why when it talks about taking care of the widows and orphans in scripture it's because there wasn't a male um to protect them and so that's what left them so vulnerable but also uh being vulnerable to their own you know the ones that are supposed to love and take care of them and so we're talking about a very extremely patriarchal context and so um as such women are supposed to be in the home preparing the home being in the home not really interacting with men but just serving the men in their lives and so we enter the story and martha uh, you know, is doing as a woman should. She's preparing the home. She's getting it ready for her guests. And uh, Mary is breaking all of the rules and sitting at the feet of Jesus. And not only is this offensive um, because she's in the presence of man, men and she shouldn't be, but she's trying to learn, which is something she shouldn't be doing. She's trying to learn religiously, which is something you shouldn't be doing. And to sit at the feet of a rabbi meant that you're intending to become a rabbi yourself. So she is being super offensive. It totally makes sense uh, that Mary's or Martha's getting mad at her. Mary, you're not doing what a woman should. You should be helping me in the kitchen and instead you're 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 behaving as a man and you can't do that and um so you know martha's like jesus tell her to help me in the kitchen she's not i'm embarrassed like she needs to help me and jesus and one word i think destroys gender roles on and just one sentence and jesus always has these crazy one-liners and he says mary has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her and I and I think we kind of overlook the significance of what that means. Mary, by breaking with her prescribed gender norm, sitting at the feet of men, thinking she's like a man that she can teach and learn and and be a teacher or rabbi as well, has chosen what is better and it will not be taken from her. And I just think we just glance over these these profound countercultural moments that Jesus does. Like um, when I look at scripture again and again, what I see and what we should all see, who does Jesus condemn? Who does he call out? It's the religious elite that are trying to hoard power to appear holy without doing things that are holy. So what are things that are holy? It's uh, caring for the widow and the orphan. It's visiting, you know, those in prison. It's caring for the sick. It's clothing the naked. Yet church today so often we don't care about those things we're more interested in in worshiping or appearing holy or praying in public all of these things that god says this doesn't mean anything unless you care for others and when jesus was when people ask jesus what's the greatest commandment um it's you know love god with all your heart and the second is like it uh you know, love your neighbor as yourself. And so often we fail to do that. And and I, I even go back to the Old Testament when we have these Old Testament prophets, Isaiah, Amos, um, it, it talks about how God is frustrated with um, his people because they're, they're sacrificing their fat and cows. They're, you know, singing their praises. They're doing all, they're having these festivals, they're fasting. And God says, 
I don't actually hear you wash your hands and be clean. I don't want your sacrifices. I don't want your festivals. I don't want your praises. What I want is for you to learn to do right, um, to, to, seek, uh, to, to seek justice, to free the oppressed. And so often, if we look at our church right now, what are we doing? We're, we're having our festivals and our praises and our prayers, and we're not caring uh, for people. We're not washing our bloody hands. We're not acknowledging the systems that are in place that harm others. It talks about in, in the Bible how our, our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against powers and principalities. And I feel like we, again, we misunderstand that verse. Like, my battle is not against, you know, perhaps another belief, maybe not a conservative evangelical believer, my battle is against racism and patriarchy and, and these powers and principalities, hello, uh, that are present in the church. And so for me, I feel like to follow God most clearly um, is to use my voice to, like Jesus said, choose what is better and it not have it. And that would be to use my voice and to have that not be taken from me. So for me, my, my battle is against specifically for me as a woman and what I've seen is patriarchy um, and uh, obviously white supremacy and stuff like that. I'm also unlearning, but what I'm really dedicated to taking down is Christian patriarchy and the way that it's been used to harm others. And so using my voice is choosing to not be complicit in a system that hurts women. And I saw firsthand how this system harms women. And I will not be complicit anymore. I will not be complicit by shutting up and sitting down because this is too harmful. The fruit is rotten and I'm going to be calling it out. Mm-hmm. So the, the inspiration that you get from Jesus, I mean, I think mm-hmm. that that makes sense. I'm wondering if, you know, like, if there's been moments like I, I, my podcast, the winter faith podcast, like winter faith to me is like moments where we're just facing um, apathy, discouragement, um, depression, anxiety, um, what, whatever is our kind of winter seasons. Mm -hmm. So for you, is there anything like that? Like I hear your, your Mm -hmm. passion, (laughs) you seem in like, motive like definitely motivated but I guess I'm, I'm so like are you encouraged where we're at like where where are you at when you just kind of sit with you know yeah. you, you've had this book you've had this this podcast you have a supportive um husband that that you talk about um where yeah I'm really curious yeah so I think um I mean, so a hot topic in the church right now is deconstruction, and I think it should be. And I actually think deconstruction is repentance um, for a lot of us. Some might walk away from the faith, but I think what they're out ultimately walking away from is um, patriarchy, white supremacy, homophobia, which is, um, you know, if you ask my, I'm a millennial, if you ask my generation, why are they leaving the church? That is always the answer you'll get. That's why I have, you know, I quit my job. Why did I quit my job? It wasn't because I didn't love Jesus. I quit it because I felt like this was a patriarchal context and I didn't want to continue to be part of it. I, I felt like I was being called by God to step away and to call things out. And so um, 
has it been easy? Have I had winter? Oh, absolutely. Have I had moments of, I remember um, after the 2016 election, so this was shortly before I quit my job, just feeling like I had been lied to. I um, had been told my whole life to care for others and working with women who had been sex trafficked. Of course, I believed survivors. I knew what it, I was a survivor of sexual assault myself. I knew what it was like to have someone touch your body without consent and to talk about it flippantly as it wasn't a big deal. And so we had, you know, those tapes come out from Donald Trump where he literally bragged about sexual assault. Like he literally bragged about it. To see that come out and to see the people who had taught me to care for women who told me that they cared about me to act like this wasn't a big deal uh, to be like, no, I think he's still the best candidate here. That, that was so devastating to me. I can't even put it into words that I think made me start to deconstruct a lot. Like what? (laughs) I feel like you've told me I'm, I have dedicated my life to the church. I am a missionary. Like I have been always been a Christian And you taught me to care for these things and I care for these things, but by choosing this candidate, it feels like you actually don't care about those things. And of course I heard all of the reasoning, but for me, it didn't take away the pain that it felt as a survivor for this to be, no, it's actually okay. This is fine. This is the best way. And I remember sobbing about it all day and going to a man that I really trusted and hoping to be encouraged to have some I guess, empathy for what I was going through. And he said, Megan, this is God's will and you will eventually get it or you won't, you know, this kind of, you're wrong. This is, this is great. Um, This is God's will. And for me, I felt like this is not the God I know. This is not, I I was, I was severely disillusioned. Um, and it kind of sent me into a tailspin, <laughs> um, and questioning everything. If, if this is the context I come from, and this is what they care about, what does this mean for what I've dedicated my life to? And so, um, it was, you know, around that time that I started to see a therapist, thank goodness I needed therapy. I needed to kind of find my footing. Um, you know, I had some childhood trauma and it felt like, this was like bringing up all of the trauma I had as a child I had was bringing up the sexual assault was bringing up all of these um, things and like God where are you is this you is this what you want and and really having to to find God in the midst of that and I felt like God uh, was actually with me and understood me and was closer than my skin and uh, there's a story I tell about in the book where um, so I talk, I have a podcast called Faith and Feminism. You've heard me talk. I, you know that I've probably upset people and I certainly have um, gotten terrible emails telling me I should be raped. I've had friends and family send me terrible emails. Um, I had one friend uh, tell me that she, because um, I believed Dr. Ford during the Kavanaugh hearings, because um, I believe survivors, um, tell me, she told me that, um, she couldn't be associated with the liberal agenda. She reduced me to the liberal agenda and mm-hmm. said she couldn't be associated with me anymore. And I remember this was after weeks of a lot of conflict with my in-laws. Uh, they didn't believe that women should preach or teach 
or have any role of leadership in the church. And because I did, they thought we weren't Christians and that we were going to hell. And it eventually blew up to such a degree where my husband and I canceled our um, flights home. And so, and, and then I was getting this, it was actually my 30th birthday. And I got this message from a, a dear friend that I had been friends with since high school telling me, I can't support you. And I remember feeling like maybe I am wrong. Maybe God is not who I think God is. Maybe God is severely disappointed in me. And I remember running out to my car, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing because I can take the disappointment of friends and family and strangers on the internet. But what I cannot take is God being against me. And I remember just like crying, feeling like waves of rejection roll over me. And as I was crying in the car, I couldn't drive home. I couldn't see. I was crying too hard. And this woman knocked on my door and uh, of my car in a Starbucks parking lot and uh, was motioning me to get out of the car. And I was like, okay, this is super weird. But also I felt something in me tell me to get out of the car. And I got out of the car and she immediately pulled me into a hug and just held me as I sobbed. And she kept on saying, I'm not letting you leave until you know how loved you are. I'm not letting you leave until you know how loved you are. And just praying the Christian Jesus's name over me. And it was such a profound experience to me because in the span of, you know, half an hour, I've been rejected uh, in the name of the Christian God and in the name of Jesus. And less than half an hour later, this random woman appears telling me that I'm loved as I am and that God's proud of me and, and praying things that there's no way she could know what I was dealing with. In fact, I never spoke because I was crying too hard. I literally could not speak. And I just remember feeling like, okay, God sent me this woman to show me that I'm not alone, that I am like, God is still pleased with me. God is still proud of me. God has not left my side. And so for me, whenever I start to doubt God, I feel like, you know, it was about a year, about maybe a year and a half from when Trump was elected to that moment. And, or maybe almost a year, I I don't quite, I think it was almost a year. No, it was two years. Sorry. It was, <laughs> it was like two years. And I felt like I was kind of in many ways feeling like I was doubting God uh, for those two years, feeling really lost. But I feel like that moment just submitted. Of course, God is with me. God is closer than my skin. And so, um, yeah, I don't, I don't, I've had those moments of doubt. I've had those moments of feeling like God has left me and, and God does not look like the patriarchal version I was taught. So I had to do a lot of unlearning of that and feeling untethered from that. But um, I'm so confident that God is a liberator now. Like it doesn't, I don't try and earn God's good graces by like, you know, spending an hour reading my Bible every morning or like publicly praying or trying to appear holier than thou my relationship with God, I think, is a lot more authentic. Um, and I don't feel like I constantly owe God something. I feel like God loves me as I am. And I don't have to prove myself. And I don't owe God something. And truly, the work I do is not because I'm trying to earn something. It's because I've seen my bloody hands, and I want to do better. And so um, I think that's what repentance has looked like for me. And so I do, I do feel close with God, but it doesn't look like I was taught it would look. Well, I think you've developed the heart that God has. Mm -hmm. And I think that's what we're, hopefully that's what we're trying to do. Yeah. Like you've mentioned, 
who did God care about in the Bible? Who did Jesus mm -hmm. spend his time with? Mm -hmm. um, who did he give stern, you know, rebuke. direction, mm -hmm. rebuke? Yeah. And I just, I mean, I relate to that pain of mm -hmm. being condemned for, you know, I like this author and therefore I'm not a Christian anymore. That yeah. hurts when, mm -hmm. you know, when that was told to me. Mm -hmm. Um yeah I'm feeling that and yeah. I just think that's like the the heart of God like you've mentioned is to love those that are um really broken by a system and you know widows and orphans is mm -hmm. the phrase that we that we see in the Bible but you know there's also like the Samaritans and mm -hmm. the um you know, even how Jesus loves the Pharisees at moments. Yeah. Like, there's just so much to be gained. Mm -hmm. And it, I just feel like, wow, you've done a lot of work in a short period. Like it feels like <laughs> yeah. it's been fast, you know, mm -hmm. and not everybody's story is, is like that. Um, and yeah, I guess um, maybe my last question um Thank you so much for taking time to do this. Um, yeah. So what is the the message that you would give to my eight-year-old daughter? Mm. Like, what is, what do, what do I need to teach her as her parent? And, you know, my wife, obviously there's other family members too, but yeah, just the message to the, the girls that are, that are young and, and trying to figure out this world um, that, that they're in. I think that would be, um, I don't know if you yeah. thought about it at all. I mean, yeah. And every time I, gosh, I also just, sometimes I like think about little girls like emotional and like want to cry. Yeah. Like I'll see them in the grocery store. I'm like, oh my God. Okay. Um, there is so much I want to say. I think growing up as a woman, you get so many messages about mm. your worth. We grew up with phrases uh, uh, that it's bad to be a girl. So we hear things like you run like a girl, you throw like a girl, uh, women superheroes are not like you young boys are not taught to look up to women um they're only taught to look up to men whereas women or young girls are taught like oh you know either superhero is fine and so I think even that is an example of how women aren't valued and so I think for me what I want to say to the little girl is like you are not less because you're a woman. You are not less, you're not weaker, you are not less intelligent, you are not, you are so much more than what they've told you. And I think so much of that is, we're told that we're less in so many different ways. We're told that our value comes from the way we look, the way our body is, if we're sexually attractive to men. And, and so many messages that we get are, do men like you? Do men, like, it's, it's such a catch-22 because we're told we need to be sexually attractive to men, but then we're shamed for being sexually attractive to men. There's, there's not a way that we can exist. And so much of our existence we've been told is to look beautiful and to be desirable. And what I want to say is you're so much more than that. You're, you're, you're not put on this planet for men. You're put on this planet because I feel like God thought the world needed you and wasn't complete without you. And you're not in service to anyone else. 
um, you exist as a whole person on your own. And so, uh, yeah, that's what I would say to her. Yeah. You're not less. You're fully human. You've been made in the image of God and you're not here to serve other people or to be there for their pleasure. You are here because there's something really special and unique about you. And I encourage you to step into that instead of shrinking back. 